When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, kiddies, this is John Karabi, and you are listening to Jay Scott on The Hook Rocks. Keep it loud, keep it proud, turn it up, and see you soon. Yeah! Friday, everyone. I hope everyone's having a great day. Great uh, sunny summer day. Getting ready for the weekend. Hopefully, uh, we're going to some shows. Hopefully, we're still able to go to some shows. Big news yesterday. Paul Stanley Kiss made the announcement that he's got COVID. He seems to be okay, just having some maybe mild symptoms or tested positive without symptoms. But I know they had to postpone the show uh Last night, I believe it was in Pennsylvania. I don't know if they're going to be canceling any moving forward, but uh, that's something to watch there. New music coming out. Uh, yeah, just a whole bunch of stuff coming out this week. We had the new Station song, the new Black Label Society song released this week. Tesla's got a new song out. Just a whole bunch of stuff. Dean Castronova and Jeff Scott Soto release new stuff, so a whole bunch of good music, great music coming out for you, getting ready for the weekend, for you to listen over the weekend and beyond, so check that stuff out. Always remember to support new music, new bands, new artists, legacy artists with new music. Uh, You know, It is a difficult time. I had this conversation with someone the other night about the importance of buying things at shows that you go to when you see these bands, because this is how they're making their living. Gone are the days of the big record deals, the big advancements. 
That's why bands tour so much. That's why they come through areas, you know, multiple times a year. It's because, you know, they're, they're fighting for every dollar. So please support all your favorite artists when you go see them at a show. Make sure you got a little bit of extra cash to, uh, to buy something, whether it's a CD, vinyl, T-shirt, bumper sticker, keychain, hat, magnet, pins, patches, whatever. Please do that. Please support your artist. I was at the show the other night with the Cold Stairs, one of my favorite new bands. I've had Chris on, Chris, the uh, lead singer, guitar player, on a couple of times. Hoping to, have, hoping to have him on again here in the next few days. But uh, just an awesome show. Great band. I will say this. Their, their albums are phenomenal. But when you see them live, man, it's a holy shit moment. So good. So awesome. Friendly guys, humble guys as well. Really good dudes. Um, was able to pick up their limited edition vinyl for their new album, Heavy Shoes. But, uh, yeah, it's um, just a great show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us wherever you podcast, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever. It's always important to grow our audience as we continue down this journey and write us a review if you're so inclined. We are also are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, as I mentioned before every show. Check out all the new and old Hook Rocks podcast episodes wherever you do podcast. Check us out on pantheonpodcast.com, as well as many other music-related podcasts. They are a network of music podcasts, so you can find something you like on there, I'm sure. Just a great family to be a part of, so check them out. Uh, we got a great show here today. We got Jack J. Hutchinson coming from the UK, and a great conversation for all of you to listen to. That's coming up next. Let's take care of some business, and we'll be back soon with Jack J. Hutchinson. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us. Blue Chew. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer lasting erections. Let's have a good time, baby. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable form and a fraction of the cost. Cha-ching! Blue Chew's tablets help men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of ED, erectile dysfunction. It's probably the most important thing in any relationship. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. BlueChew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problems here. BlueChew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, America, 
and they prepare and ship direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for the Hook Rocks podcast listener. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code MILK SHAKE at checkout. Just paying $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code MILK SHAKE to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the Hook Rocks podcast. My next guest joins us from the UK. He's just released a new single called Call the Wild. I'd like to talk to blues rock guitar player Jack J. Hutchison. What's going on, Jack? How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you very much for doing this. I do appreciate it. Looking forward to learning more about you and uh, your music and what's next for you. And uh, pleasure to have you on. Yeah, man. It's, it's great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, the honor is all mine. So, yeah. Well, we always start the same way every time we have a first-time guest, and that is the essence of the podcast. Just like every great rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's an album, a band, a song, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Well, I'd say the biggest band for me when I was was a teenager was Led Zeppelin, and they just... um, completely blew my mind at a time in the UK where I guess sort of Britpop was the main thing that people were really listening to around my age. And so you had a lot of bands like Blur and Oasis and even stuff like uh, Radiohead, I guess, was out at that time. But that stuff kind of did certain things for me. But then when I I heard Led Zeppelin, and it it was actually um, the track Heartbreaker. So um, one one of my dad's friends lent me the box set that was the remasters that came out in the early nineties. And I listened to heartbreaker and that song just absolutely blew my mind. And I, I, uh, I'd already started to play guitar, but I was going to these sort of classical guitar lessons that they seemed like a bit of a chore every week. And I wasn't too much of a fan of it. I wanted to be kind of outside playing football with my mates, but, um, yeah, as soon as I got into Led Zeppelin, it kind of changed my whole perspective on everything. And, and that was really the inspiration for me, uh, beginning my musical journey, as it were. Led Zeppelin is known for, you know, the blues influence, you know, that came before them with their songs and their music. And as they evolved, they they sort of changed. They kept the blues influence, but they added a lot of like Middle Eastern elements into their into their music, like Egyptian type of tones and, and arrangements. As far as the blues goes, though, which, you know, your music is is obviously heavily influenced on the blues. Where did that Led Zeppelin beginnings take you into the blues world? Well, I think a lot of people that get into Jimmy Page, they, they sort of use him as a, a gateway into that historical musical past of blues. And there's a lot of uh, musicians that I started to discover through simply looking through um the influence on, influences on particular Zep tracks. And I remember buying a, a book, which was, I think it was called like Led Zeppelin Influences. And they went through album by album, track by track, and they looked at certain um, inspirations for the songs. And so that was that was kind of like my, um, 
yeah, like my library, that, that book offered me gateways into bands like, um, like, I guess like individual musicians, sorry, rather than bands. So people like Charlie Patton and BB King and Muddy Waters and those sorts of guys that I wouldn't have discovered necessarily had I not got into Zep. And, um, it opened a whole new kind of scene of music for me and a whole kind of vibe that, I wasn't really getting in sort of late 90s, early 2000s, UK. I was living in Manchester at the time, and you certainly weren't hearing Charlie Patton on the radio. So um, it was a really kind of magical experience. And I I look back on that, that period of sort of 99, where, yeah, I started to just really get into this stuff. And um, the Black Crows released an album with Jimmy Page around that period, the Live at the Greek album, where they covered quite a few uh, old blues tunes. And so it was taking that historic sound and then kind of contemporizing it which Zepp had sort of done in the late 60s early 70s but then I felt like the Crows had done it again in the in the late 90s and and that sort of gave me a, a roadmap for my my uh, career as well which was really great I just saw the Black Crows like two weeks ago in concert and they still have it I mean they still sound absolutely phenomenal yeah I I think um I mean I've seen the Crows I don't know how many times. I mean, I was absolutely gutted when when I first got into the Crows and they would they just put out Lions and um, I was a bit too young to really go and see them and so I was like, oh, you know, I'll catch them on the next tour and then then of course they broke up. But then in 2006 when they they did the first reunion, um, they played Shepherd's Bush Empire in in London and I I travelled down from Manchester with my mates and we spent like we went to all three shows and we we basically spent three days. Uh, you know, smoking a, a lot of weed in the park and then going to see the crows in the evening. And it, I, it was like this, um, like this heavenly experience seeing Chris Robinson on stage, absolutely smashing it. And uh, I've been seeing them every time they come to the UK since. And they just uh, on another level for me. And, you know, I saw um, Chris Robinson Brotherhood a couple of years ago when they came to London and I enjoyed what Chris was doing in that band. But you know when he does the, when he does his Rod Stewart faces thing. I, I, there's nobody better. I, I just think he's absolutely brilliant. I I agree. I think he's got that Jagger, old Rod Stewart kind of vibe to him when he's on stage too, which is really cool. Yeah, he's not doing the sort of eighties uh, Rod Stewart, is he? But he, he's he's doing the faces thing. And yes, uh, I mean I'm not I'm not too sure about this umbrella that he seems to be bringing on stage right now. But you know the, the rest of it is pretty cool. It's a nice prop, right? Um, <laughs> I think if I suggested that to my bandmates, they'd probably smack me in the face. You know, I'm going to bring an umbrella on stage, guys. I, I don't think they'd have it. But uh, Chris Robinson can do it because he's Chris Robinson. Right. Right. What's great about those bands that you mentioned, the Black Crows, Led Zeppelin, is for people being exposed to them and listening to their music, it's a gateway to what came before them. And when you peel back the orange on rock music, you find that blues element that exists in almost everything you hear in rock, hard rock, and even heavy metal. When you're able to find that, key to the muddy waters you know the the elmore james the you know freddie king the bb king all those artists it's a it's it's a wonderful experience and when you have zeppelin and you've got the crows and even the stones you know you if you want to you can peel back that orange and you can go into a whole new avenue of music that is just beautiful 
Well, I think that music for me has always been about capturing moments in time as well. And so whenever I stick on BB King records now, it, it takes me back to that kind of, the, the, in my mind's eye, it's this sort of like glorious sunshine and summer of the sort of 99 where I started really getting into this stuff. And like, I had a group of friends that we were kind of, it felt like we were the, the outcasts at our school. Like we, you know, we all had really long hair. We, we sat around listening to Led Zeppelin on our lunch breaks and, um, you know, playing guitars and stuff. And we, we were not like the other kids at our school. Um, which is funny because it kind of, I don't know, for some reason that seems to intimidate people because you're slightly different, but it, it was like, you know, people bringing in records and, um, you know, I was, I was getting into buying vinyl and at that point you could buy vinyl, you could buy, you know, old, um, Muddy Waters vinyl for about two quid over here. It was so cheap. And obviously now vinyls had a resurgence and obviously the price has gone up again. But it just takes me back to this amazing moment where I felt like I was just engulfing myself with all of this creativity. And it was helping me learn how to be a better songwriter as well. I've, I've always seen myself above being a guitarist and a singer, really. It's all about the songwriting process. And looking back historically at how people have taken those influences and made them their own. Uh, that was a really good learning experience for me. And so, you know, you get to bands like the Stones where obviously there's a, ma a massive blues influence on the Stones, but they're not a straight ahead blues band. And I, that's something that has always interested me about bands like the Crows where, you know, you can hear that, um, certainly Elmore James, obviously, uh, they named the first album after an Elmore James track, but it's, it's like, it's there, but they've done something different with it. And I think that's the key. There's no point mimicking those artists. Cause yeah, I, I did a concert over here a couple of years ago at Liverpool Philharmonic where, um, we did a, it was like a recreation of the last waltz. And, um, I was asked to do the muddy waters track and I was like, I can't sing muddy waters. You know, I'm a, I'm a white guy from near Manchester. There's no way I can pull off muddy waters. So they, they got, they found somebody else who could actually pull it off. Um, so you've got to take this influence and, and sort of make it your own, I think. When did it become, when did your journey lead to wanting to perform on stage? Well, initially, I think I felt really nervous about being on stage. I was I was a really shy guy when I was a teenager and, and getting lost in guitar was my escape, really. I, I think... Um, you know, like a lot of kids, you know, I was bullied at school. And uh, I think getting into guitar was my savior, really. Um, and I didn't think about performing on stage initially. It was all about essentially performing in my in my bedroom, you know, rocking out to Led Zeppelin 3 and playing along with Since I've Been Loving You. And, you know, I didn't really care about getting on stage. But then um, I joined a band and then obviously that led to us performing. And uh, I found that, for that hour or two hours we were on stage, I became somebody else. And I think that that's, that's probably the, the, the truth throughout my whole career. It's an escape um, where you become, you know, you become Jack J. Hutchinson, whatever that means, for an hour on stage, and you can escape whatever reality is at that time, whether it, you know, reality obviously can be incredibly positive, but it can also be uh, incredibly negative. And I think that, a lot of musicians, the reason why they get on stage, the best musicians are, are, are kind of losing themselves in that in that performative element. 
the worst ones are the ones that just want to get on stage because they want loads of, they want the accolades, you know? Um, that's not why I do it. I, I've just always enjoyed that kind of, that feeling of, of being lost. And the best gigs are where you're almost not even thinking anymore. You're lost in the moment. And the performative element comes with that, but it's not a contrived thing that you're putting on for people. Um, yeah, I don't know whether that explains it in the best possible way, but it, it's all about um, kind of just losing yourself. And if people think that's a good performance, I, I, I guess that that's cool as well. As far as writing goes, writing music, writing a song, what was it for you that led you to, to that? Because there's a lot of musicians that just play their instrument, right? And, you know, they're, they're, they write the riffs, they write the grooves, they write the bass line, they figure out, you know, the drums. But for lyrics, you know, you've got to tap into something. What was it for you that inspired you to go down the path of writing music, writing songs? I think I've always written about my reality and, and things that have happened to me. And I'd say that, you know, Neil Young's always been a big influence on me as well. And that kind of ability to capture a sense of reality within the lyrics and the song and the, and the feel of a song. I've always, um, that's always been the aim, I guess. And, you know, I, I when I was a teenager, I, I'd write about like, I guess like a lot of, a lot of, uh, guys do they write about relationships that have gone wrong that sort of stuff I remember I went through a massive sort of like Americana phase and uh, a, a guy that ended up actually playing with Chris Robinson um, Neil Cassell I, was, I really got into Neil Cassell's songwriting and um, kind of explored that whole element of, of writing about things that are incredibly personal to you and th- I think that that's a, a line that's carried on throughout my career and I, I think that's the best way. You're always going to have new content then, aren't you? Because you're you're not reliant on this kind of uh, third-person narrative and coming up with stories. If, you, if you're just writing about your life, then life evolves, and so you're always going to have something new to write about. You know, writing about your life versus, you know, t- writing a story or an observation, you know, when you do write about personal experiences, you've got to tap into emotions that maybe are uncomfortable at certain times. How do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I've written some songs that I thought after I've written them, you know, how am I going to how am I going to play this live? I, I wrote a song um, on my last record, which was called "I Will Follow You," which was about my dad being diagnosed with Alzheimer's and, um, you know, going into a home and that kind of sense of loss, which I think it, it's a strange feeling when you've got somebody that is in your life and is a really prominent member of your kind of, you know, close circle of family and friends. And then they, they have that kind of memory just slipping away. And, um, I've, I've always found that song really difficult to perform live because it, it takes me to quite a dark place um but then you know it, it seems to give people in the audience that that sense of um commonality where they there there's a lot of people where that illness has impacted them so that those sorts of songs are quite tricky to actually kind of carry forward um you know it's not to say i haven't written a few songs where you're you know you're placing yourself almost in a character um and there's, a, you know, stereotypical lyrics that you might write 
in rock and roll songs, uh, you know, about whiskey and women and that kind of thing. And um, it doesn't necessarily always kind of uh, ring true with reality. But those songs where I've I've sung about things like my dad, uh, I think they're the best songs, and they seem to have the strongest emotional impact on people, which is which is great. You know, it's an amazing thing to have messages from people saying, oh, I listened to your song and it's really helped me get through, um, you know, this experience. So that's powerful, really. And also for you, you know, reliving the experience can be difficult, but it can also be therapeutic. And also, it can also show you a different viewpoint of maybe an uncomfortable situation or, or a sensitive topic. Do you ever find that when you are writing a song that is, about a difficult time in your life or a difficult experience, when you come out that other side, you have a different perspective, a better perspective on what you dealt with? I think it, I think when you write it and record it, you kind of get lost in, in the process of it. But, um, you know, like I've just, I've just finished my, um, my new album, finished doing the recording and doing all the mix and everything. And I've had a few weeks away from it now. And then you start to look back on the songs and, you go, wow, you know, this really was a, a really resonant piece of music, piece of creativity that has helped me get through something. And, um, you know, they're almost like photo books, aren't they, songs? You can kind of listen to something that you've written and go, God, you know, I wrote that. That's a, obviously, you know, there's a few songs on the on the new album which were written as we went into lockdown last year, so it kind of takes you back to that period a little bit. Um I was quite keen to not write 10 tracks about lockdown. So I think that would be a bit boring, but you know, um, I, I think, yeah, songs are are just these magical pieces of creativity. And, you know, I'm a visual artist as well and I make drawings and I've I've made paintings and and they can impact people in in a creative sense, but I don't think they have the same emotional impact that songs do. And that's interesting as well. When you, when you have exhibitions and people come and look at your drawings and they kind of, yeah, they, they take something from it, but it's a very, very different emotional experience for somebody hearing, you know, you sing a song about somebody that is, is losing their, their kind of um, mind to Alzheimer's. I think it, it, songs have the ability to be more powerful and change people's lives in a different way. As we lead to the new song, Call the Wild, and we talk about your yeah. songwriting, and we talk about writing about experiences. We all have gone through what we've gone through the past 18 months or so with COVID. Um, you know, here in America, we've had protests. I believe, you know, based on what I've seen with Brexit, there was an equal amount of protests in England, although for a different type of, you know, situation. We also had a toxic election here. You guys had an election so, you know, the UK and the US have kind of mirrored each other in, in experiences over the last few years. When, mm. when you are under a lockdown and a, a stay at home, you know, stay at home uh, order, how do you write music? How do you find those, those personal experiences to write about when your experiences are not like they were before, are not, are not happening like they were before? Well, I think for me, lockdown allowed me a, a certain point where I stopped for the first time in probably about five or six years where I'd just been on this constant cycle of 
writing albums, recording, and then touring. Um, and right up before lockdown, I, I mean, I just got back from a tour of Brazil. Uh, we flew back from Brazil, and then I went straight to Spain. Did you know a couple of weeks in Spain, then flew back, and then I started my UK tour. So I was kind of on this roll of just traveling everywhere, and that was coming straight out of a period of um, recording the album, and, and then festival. You know, it's like a twelve-month period where everything was pretty crazy. And so actually, what it did do was it gave me a bit of spare time to write, rather than writing songs in hotel rooms or sound checks and traveling around and. It, I think it made me write better songs because I wasn't rushing stuff and it allowed me, it just gave me this reflective period, which I don't never really have done that before. I've always been quite forward thinking, you know, as soon as I've done one project, it's like, right, what am I going to do now? Um, which is pretty cool, you know, and I think it meant that I could write better lyrics. I could write better melodies because I focused on spending a bit of time trying new stuff on the guitar, trying new, approaches to writing that were outside the kind of comfort zone of my previous record. So in some respects, it was, it was quite cool. And I, you know, I just kind of, I, I sort of built my own home studio in my spare room um, and did lots of demoing and recording in here. So it, it was, it was quite a good experience in many ways. I mean, after like three months I'd had enough and I was like, right, I need to get back out now. I'm going a bit, a bit loopy here, but uh, yeah, it, it, from a creative standpoint and a songwriting standpoint, I think it was pretty good. Did you find yourself, you know, getting sucked into what was happening around you? Did you find that your tone of music was different because of everything that was, you know, you're, you're seeing and absorbing as a result of what's happening in reality? I started listening to different music. I, um, I, I sort of rediscovered a lot of bands that I'd got into in my teens as well. And um, one of those bands that was just happened to be Iron Maiden. I'd, I'd not listened to Maiden for a very long time and um, started to listen to mainly the kind of like the period when Bruce rejoined. And I, I started writing these sort of 12 minute epic rock songs, which certainly wasn't what I'd written previously. So there's a bit of that on the new record. When it came to mixing, I, I was quite ruthless and was like, do you know what? This goes on for 15 minutes, this, and I, I need to just cut it down a bit. And um, <laughs> yeah, so it's not quite full on Maiden. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there is a track on the, on the new album as well that's been mixed by Kevin Shirley, who, who works with Maiden, obviously. And uh, that is a bit maiden So I don't know. I, I, I think it pushed me in a different direction to do that. And uh, I think it's pretty cool to try new stuff. I, I think if I'd just gone in to do a record on the back of doing a more and more touring, it probably would have just sounded like the other records. And to me, those first three albums that I put out, they're very similar. The, the songs are very similar. So it's been good to have a bit of a, a change in focus. And hopefully, like, you know, people that came to my music five years ago when I was just doing like acoustic blues, they won't be totally horrified by the six minute guitar solos but you know i can only apologize if that uh it, it blows your ears out <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so the new song is called the wild um it is the first single you've released since what 2019 2020 yeah i mean it, it, that song was recorded yeah just as we went back into lockdown last year so we kind of opened up in the UK and I, I'd sort of, I wrote that song almost as a celebration of, yeah, we're back. And 
And we, we flew out to France and did a show in France. And we were like, right, we're getting back to touring Europe. And it, it was all seems to be going really well. Then about four weeks later, we, we were plunged back into being locked in our houses again. Uh, so that song was written at the point where everything was brighter and everything. So it's quite an upbeat track. Um, but then uh, it was recorded when we were in lockdown. So we, you know, headed to the studio. We got permission from the musicians' union here to to go and do it, and um, smashed it out in about. We did the drums and bass and guitars in one day, and then the next day I, t- I tracked the vocals. But really pleased with it, and yeah, we've done it on a few of the gigs since we started touring again, and it, it seems to go down and go down really well, and people know the, the lyrics and stuff. So um, yeah, it's a bit of an ACDC type riff mixed with. A kind of, um, I don't know. Somebody said it's quite beatly the, the harmony uh, bits on it, but I don't know about that. Um, I always aim for Chris Robinson to be fair with vocals and things, but I, you know, I haven't got a set of pipes like Chris Robinson, which unfortunately um, very few people do, do they? But uh, I think it's come out really well, and I'm really pleased with it. Yeah, it's a wonderful track. Um, it's a great way to kind of, you know, begin your journey with this new music that you're going to be putting out. When you're writing this song like Call of the Wild and you're and you're putting it together, do you know that like this is gonna be the lead track or do you wait to see how the other songs develop as you're recording them? Well, I actually sent a message to my band saying I've just written the first single. So uh, yeah, I definitely knew with that one that I wanted to put it out first. Uh but then when you kind of come to the mixing stage of the whole record, you're like, Oh, maybe we should have put this one out first. But um I think it's it's a good intro to it. Um, there's some way heavier stuff on the album that um, doesn't quite sound as, as sort of um, traditional rock as Call of the Wild, but I think it's come out really great. And and the producer, uh, Josiah Manning, who's worked with bands like Inglorious and Chris Barris Band over here, he's uh, he's done a great job of, of pulling it together and, um, you know, giving it a proper level of production, which I don't think I've quite achieved previously. So... Yeah, it sounds mad. You know, when you listen to it, when we did the video shoot for it as well, we had it cranked through this ginormous PA system. I was just like, God, what a a tune. Uh, So, yeah, super pleased with it, man. It's a great track. What about the the other songs? When when can we expect a full-length album um, from you? So the album's coming out 4th of February, so it's a little way off. Um, It's called The Hammer Falls, and we've got two singles that are going to come out. you know, one's coming out in October for Halloween, and that one's called Straight to Hell, which is a, that's a bit of a, you know, going back to what we were discussing about personal experiences, that song is an example of me not writing from a personal experience. And I tried to write songs that kind of, a, a, a new song that kind of referenced my love of um, old amicus horror movies and hammer horror movies and that sort of stuff. And the video is very, um, it's like an animated video with, um, it looks like a cartoon strip to be honest and uh, so it's a bit of a different one from me uh, and then we've got another single called Halo which is coming out in January and then we'll have another single which is the one that has been mixed by Kevin Shirley um, so we're kind of taking a bit of a longer lead into it mainly because um, we you know I feel like I've rushed out releases previously and not given them enough of a, a lead in so just trying something a little bit different and you know, letting the singles breathe and then letting the album come out and stand alone on its own. So, um, yeah, it'll come around quick, actually. Uh, so, yeah, really looking forward to it. And, um, 
yeah, the, the artwork has been done by this guy uh, in Spain called Revelation Studio. It's a bloke called Anastasio. And he's done artwork for uh, Blasco from Ozzy's band and uh, a few other people, but very kind of doom rock stuff, really. And uh, he's, he's done some incredible artwork for the singles and the album artwork's really cool as well. So super pleased with the whole package. Did you have a direction that you wanted to go into with this album or was it something that was built organically while you were recording the music? Well, I actually started the, this album thinking I'm going to write a concept album, which um, very quickly didn't happen. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of tracks on there uh, that directly reference um, Stephen King's Dark Tower books. And I wrote two songs. One was called The Wastelands, which didn't make it onto the record in the end. And the other one was one called Gunslinger. And so I was like, I'm going to write this whole album that references these books. And then, um, you know, as I say, got two songs in and was like, do you know what, sod this, it's too much work. Um, you know, I wrote songs that, I started to write songs that meant something to me. And I, I, I just don't, don't think I'm, I'm that sort of writer to write a concept album. Um, so, yeah, the, there was no kind of overarching theme. But then you kind of, I think it, it's pulled together in the recording process maybe where each song has different kinds of topics and things that we discuss. but. You know, you, you, you're pulling it together, obviously, through doing it all in, in one session in terms of the studio setup. Although we did do multiple sessions, so that's not quite correct. But I wouldn't say there's an overarching theme of the record. Um, apart from, you know, like things have been tough, but we're getting through it and we're, we're, we're coming out the other side. I, I think it's quite a positive record, really, in some ways, despite a lot of melancholic lyrics about death <laughs> so um it, it sort of takes you on this journey that i suppose it's it's reflective of the journey we've been on in the last 18 months where you know it's been pretty dark at times but hopefully we're, we're coming out the other side of it as your journey continues in music and you know there's always a certain sense of evolving you know from one album to another one project you know to another where have you personally seen the, the you know the the evolve evolvement of your or you evolving as a musician? Where where do you think that is? Where do you think that lies in terms of how you started to where you're at now? Well, I think I've always been quite insular in terms of writing process, and one thing that I did do with this new record is I I co-wrote co-wrote a couple of so songs with my bandmates. Um, and I've never been that open to doing it. I was in a band a couple of years ago with two of the guitar players. And, and um, I think I learned from that process. I don't really do very well being in bands with other guitarists. There's too many egos going around and I kind of want to be the boss. So that was my experience there. And I, I struggled to co-write in that band. And so I've not really done it since. But then I managed to do it and in a very bizarre way, co-wrote through through sending each other files via WeTransfer and, you know, sending ideas and then we put stuff together, which was a, a new way of doing stuff. And maybe that's the way to do it, is to not have me in the same room as somebody where arguments can then ensue. It's to actually just do it via email. But uh, that was really exciting. And I think that's uh, that's something that I do, I do definitely want to explore further, you know, in the future, co-writing. And, and I think it'll push my music in a different way as well. 
is it important for you when you are co-writing based on this recent experience to, you know, have someone that you kind of connect with musically or is it better for you to kind of have that push and pull with someone that maybe, you know, you're both trying to, you know, there's that, there's that creative tension in the year whenever you're writing, which do you prefer? Yeah. I'm not sure I enjoy the creative tension to be honest. I, uh, I just end up getting in a huff and wanting to walk out. So I I think because I'm so passionate about my own ideas and I tend to, I, pro- I, I think I probably do tend to think I'm always right when I'm, when I'm writing songs, which isn't a cool attitude, I know, but it's just the way I am. I might as well admit it. Um, I, I don't really enjoy that tension. I, I like it when there's a kind of positive sense of batting ideas backwards and forwards and, um, I think actually what has been useful is that with my bandmates, Laz and Felipe, they kind of understand that it's my name on the record. So I will have the final say on stuff. So I think that's, yeah, I'm trying to word this without me sounding like a dick, but it's, it's <laughs> kind of like, I, I need, somebody needs to be the boss in the situation and that is me, you know, it's my name, my name on the album. So I, I am the boss of the situation. <laughs> Well, I mean, you are the front man. You are the, you know, the face of the music. So, of course, you know, you've got to have that, you know, artistic control or you've got to be comfortable with someone's feedback. You know, when someone's producing your music, you know, how do you, you know, deal with different ideas of like if you're hearing something different or you're hearing what you're hearing in your head and the producer is like, well, maybe should we try something like this? Are you open to things like that, or are do you try to stay as true to what your vision is, you know, originally when you're making the music? I think working with Josiah, who's the producer on the record, um, and the engineer of the record was a, a chap called Josh Norton Cox, and, and they were great because what they were doing, they weren't trying to change the songs, but they were they were approaching like, well, how can we make these songs the best that they can be? And whether that would be adding guitar layers, adding sort of, you know, percussion elements or keys and that kind of thing that I, I tried to be more open with that this time than I perhaps have been previously where I've been like, you know, we're a rock and roll band. We're not having synthesizers on this track. That's stupid. You're, you're insane. I'm not doing that. I've, I was more open with this and, uh, Josiah's got some great ideas for production and, and we've talked about doing some co-writing in the future as well for my next album so that would be quite interesting um, thinking about it more in terms of like a sonic scape as, uh, as well because I, I always think about songs you know I write most of my songs on acoustic guitar you know I, I, I envisage myself as like uh, like Neil Young on his on his ranch writing and, and in that sort of even though I'm writing you know on the outskirts of London but um I don't think about the end product as much. Whereas I, I guess I did do a lot more of that this time where I thought about, you know, how can we utilize contemporary production techniques to take a kind of age old approach to songwriting and take it into the 21st century. You know, uh, it's what a lot of bands do. It's not, I'm not doing anything that's like revolutionary or anything like that, but it, it's probably revolutionary for my songwriting process. Let's put it that way. Sure. How are things in the UK? I mean, I've no, you know, Brexit, you know, really impacted the movement for musicians and bands, 
you know, throughout Europe when it comes to, you know, touring and, and playing music. I know I had a member of, of the band, The Hot Damn, uh, about a month and a half ago, a month or so ago. And she was talking about, you know, the, now that the expenses of touring Europe are almost equal to touring America, more artists and bands are, are thinking of, you know, going and in, 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 in testing the, in the United States and the U.S. market. Where do you sit with that? What's your perspective? Well, we've had to do quite a lot of work behind the scenes to try and work out how we're going to get to do our, we've got European dates for 2022 um, and it's just going to become more costly. So it's trying to work out how to reduce those costs as much as you can. Um, We're very fortunate that the bass player in my band owns a property uh, in France. So what we're going to, what the plan is to do is to, essentially buy gear and leave it at his property in France rather than paying to transport a load of equipment over into Europe, um, which, you know, we can just avoid that by having the, all the gear and the merchandise already there, you know. Um, it's a, it's kind of crazy because we toured Europe so much over the last five years and it was literally a case of hopping on a ferry in the van and, you know, driving off in France and then starting your tour. Whereas all the paperwork and the additional kind of visa costs for things, carnet costs, all that kind of stuff, um, it means you're operating at a significant loss before you've even played your first show. So, um, yeah, and, and it does make it similar cost-wise to traveling to the States. So uh, I am actually planning on going to the States next year. Um, and it's like, well, if I'm going to spend that money, I might as well go might as well go to America, you know, um, or go back to Brazil and, and do do shows in South America. So, um, but I'm not defeatist with it. I'll just find a way of doing it. You know, it's, it, there's always ways round things, and um, I'm not going to stop touring touring Europe because of all these stupid rules that have been in, implemented over the last six months. Because it's it's pretty horrific. Um, and I love it. I love going to Spain. It's one of my favorite countries. Love going to France, Germany. It's just so cool. And I love meeting people from different cultures. So, you know, um, I'm going to continue doing that as long as I can. Those areas you mentioned, those countries you mentioned, still have an appetite for rock music. And one of the things we've seen over the past couple of decades is rock and roll's audience, at least the younger audience, the next generation's you know, getting smaller and smaller. I do think, and I've mentioned this several times on this podcast, about there is a resurgence happening. There is the beginning of a resurgence. I still think we have a long way to go in terms of rock music becoming relevant again. But, you know, I do think that there we are on that upswing, at the beginning of that upswing with bands in the UK, bands in the US, bands in Canada, band, bands all over. You know, there's no, there's no definitive scene right now. The scene is global. And I do think that we are, you know, seeing more and more young people get into rock music. What do you see? I mean, are you seeing the same things in the UK, you know, when you're performing? I see it more in other countries, to be honest. I, I think, like, when we went to Brazil, a lot of the shows we did there were packed with younger people. You know, younger people wearing ACDC T-shirts and wearing, you know, Zep T-shirts and obviously fans of classic rock. 
and we see it a lot in Spain as well that um, you know there's a, a younger crowd a lot of women go to the shows which you don't necessarily get in the UK and it's, it is a slightly older group of people that come to those sorts of rock shows in the UK that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just a different group of people and obviously um, one of the worries that you have in the UK at the moment is if you've got a lot of um, 60, 70 year olds going to gigs, then in 10 years, who's going to be coming to the gigs, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that from my perspective, that's probably why we put so much energy into building up those more international fan bases really over the last couple of years, because yeah, you, you, you need longevity with it really, don't you? And I think that, that, Possibly rock music in the UK is – something needs to kind of change with it really to, to appeal to that younger generation. But then again, I do have fans here that, you know, I, I sent a video from a, a 13-year-old lad last week who he'd recorded himself playing along with my new single. So that was super cool. And uh, he's actually going to guest with me at a gig at the weekend, which would be really wicked. So there are younger people. Maybe it's they've, maybe it's just bypassed kind of the current thirty to forty year olds, and it's now like you know twelve year olds are getting into it a bit like I did. So uh, you know, and he he walks around wearing like a Slayer t shirt and a Metallica hat. So he's a, he's a cool little dude. So yeah, that's positive. I just think that it's like you said. You know, the importance of connecting with the youth of today with rock music is so important and so vital for. It's survival. You know, I, I don't buy into the idea that rock and roll is dead. Um, I think it's thriving, I think, in terms of bands coming out, making great music. There's so many bands and musicians out there that are putting out great material, great you know, new bands and, uh, and artists. But, again, you know, it's a wait-and-see approach. I know things kind of put on, were put on pause during the pandemic, and I think this year a lot of great music is being you know, released social media presences are building and growing, whether it's, you know, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. However, is that going to transfer into people buying music again, like, you know, the hard copy or, you know, downloads, or is it going to transfer into people going to shows? That's still the unknown, right? That's still kind of wait and see. And I think, you know, with the, with COVID and the pandemic, you have, you know, people buying music. Are they going to be comfortable going to shows again? You know, I've, I've experienced both where I think people are so wanting to go out and experience things again that you get a lot of people, you know, at an event. And then I've experienced where, you know, if numbers spike a little bit, you see a retraction with that. So it's still, you know, it's still the big question. How do, how do you see it? I think there's a lot of, trepidation at the minute in the UK for people to go to gigs and I think that um, we've been quite fortunate really in the shows that we have done that um, they've been really quite busy but I know that there's I, you know maybe that's just down to kind of relentless promotion or people possibly having bought tickets a long time ago and then still committing to going but you know, I've seen it a lot on socials with bands kind of posting about, you know, doing shows where they've got eight or nine people at the gig. And that's not financially sustainable for the venue, for the bands, for 
for all of the people involved with putting on a, on a great rock and roll show. Um, but hopefully, you know, like hopefully that will improve. Um, I think that, I think that one of the, one of the things that has been great over the last couple of years has been that resurgence in the physical sale of music. And as I said in, in this conversation at the beginning, I've been a massive fan of vinyl for a long time and I've made sure that my music's come out on vinyl. Um, and I think people have rediscovered that magical experience of picking up a physical object, looking at the artwork whilst they listen to music. I mean, my, my vinyl sales over the last 12 months have been fantastic. They actually at one point were the thing that was sustaining me and keeping me, uh, able to pay my rent because I was selling so much vinyl last year in, in lockdown that um, we put out this kind of limited edition sort of uh, purple um, splattered vinyl as well in the middle of lockdown, which sold really well. Um, and so I, I do really like that. I, I think that's, I can see that through my own sales that people really do like that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's got to then transfer into people going out and buying the ticket. And I think there's a weird thing in the UK at the minute where there's a kind of there's a a kind of misunderstanding about how popular some of this stuff is, which is, you know, there's a few bands over here that have managed to get in the charts and it's great, brilliant, they got in the charts. But if you actually I think if you were to look at the numbers of people actually buying that music, you'd probably find there's a core group of people buying five or six copies of the same album that is allowing that those bands to get in the charts. And so you then, it's like, great, you've had a top 40 single, uh, top 40 album, and then you look at the size of the venues that they're playing, and they're, they're pretty small venues, and it's like, okay, well, they're not, they're not like the next Guns N' Roses here, are they? So, you know, I, I think the UK is in a bit of a weird spot, and I, I, I feel when we've gone abroad, it, it just feels different. It feels like it, it's, there's a more kind of, as we said, like a younger crowd that are into it, that are, are sort of growing. When we did Brazil, we did this festival with about 8,000 people there and they just loved it. They loved rock and roll and it's like, wow. It felt like it felt here 20 years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm just hoping that we can kind of, it, it's down to the quality of music as well. You know, if you if you're writing great tunes and you've got, the ability to communicate that with as many people as possible, they will surely catch on and, and get into it. I agree, you know, and, and I think it, it is starting to happen. However, you know, like we said, you know, I think the interest is there for young people. Is that going to transfer into crowds coming out, buying merchandise for the artists and, and so on? You know, that's still the unknown. And, and, it, things get skewed because of COVID because you've got people coming out because they want to get out or like you said, there's some trepidation for people coming. So it's still kind of that limbo time type of time, right? That, that, you know, we don't know which way it's going to go yet. I think, I think the music part is there. I think like yourself and other artists are releasing tremendous music and great music. And I think with anything good, people will find it, right? People will go and seek it if it's good. And I think that element is there. It's just will you know all these views on social media? Will all these streams transfer over into 
people coming out and seeing the shows? And we still don't know that. Don't know the answer to that question yet. Well, fingers crossed. And, you know, I, I think that there is a lot of great music coming out and it's not necessarily great music that's being made by younger people. It, you know, I was listening to the uh, Smith Cotson album the other week. I really love that new record. I, I think there's some great singles on it. And, um, you know, if, if I was a 12, 13 year old right now and I heard that, I'd be like, wow, this is great stuff. You know, and it, it was sort of like my first gig I ever went to was, see, was to see Page and Plant and they played in Manchester in, I think it was like 1998. And I went to see them and th- those guys were like, they must have been about 55 at that point. And I didn't care that they were older. That music just really connected with me. And I think that there is a, there'll be a, it comes in waves, doesn't it? And I, in the, in the UK in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, nobody cared about guitar music. And then suddenly there was this big wave of bands that came through. So fingers crossed that wave will come again. I, I uh, have them crossed. I got them crossed on both hands because I love rock music and I love the new generation of rock music that's coming up because I think it's just as good as the music from years past, from decades past. And, you know, we've got to stop as as an older you know per- person, part of the older, older generation, we've got to stop comparing them to these bands and those bands. Let them have their own voice. Let them have their own time in the sun. And let's just enjoy it because it's really good stuff. Yeah, I think that it's exciting. You know, that same buzz that I get when I, you know, when I've completed the mixes on my record the other week and I was listening to it back, I was like, God, you know, 12 months of hard work and I'm really pleased with this. And, you know, I'm at that point where I'm sort of, I'm not super young, but I'm not super old. So I'm sort of, you know, mid thirties and I'm, I'm, I've been doing it a little while, but there's other, you know, there's a lot of bands that I'm gigging with at the moment who are kind of 21, 22 and they're brand new to all of this. And, um, I'm really enjoying that actually having had that, you know, that period of experience where I can kind of go, you know, um, this is what I've learned from the last 10 years. So I think, yeah, it, it is exciting, and it, it's exciting at the moment just to get out and gig, man. Like, so I've not done it for so long, and the first few shows we, we were coming off stage, and my drummer actually, Felipe, after the first gig, he was like, he, he's a Brazilian guy, and he was like, uh, he's hilarious. He just was like, oh man, I thought I was gonna have to, I thought I was gonna have a heart attack after the third song. He said, I forgot about how fast these songs are, and I was like, yeah, we're not match fit now, but. We've been back about two months, so we should be a bit better now, I think. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jack, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for doing this. Honestly, man, it's been my pleasure. And, um, yeah, I, I, I genuinely like talking about myself. So anything like this is just a lot of fun for me. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been great chatting to you, man. Well, hey, we'll have to do it again when the album comes out next year. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. That'd be great. Everybody, that's Jack J. Hutchinson. You can find his new single on all streaming platforms. You can get an exclusive 7-inch vinyl and a T-shirt bundle available on his website, jackjhutchinsonmusic.com. Go check it out. Always support new music and new bands. Look for the new single, Call of the Wild, like I said, on all streaming platforms. Sounds like there's going to be a new single around Halloween, so look for that. 
I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. We'll talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.